Thank you for joining us for the University of Illinois Press podcast, The Upside. I am your host, Elizabeth Huss. I am joined today by Dr. Marie Basile McDaniel, an Associate Professor of History and Secondary Education and Social Studies Co-Coordinator at Southern Connecticut State University. Dr. McDaniel is also the new editor of the Connecticut History Review at the University of Illinois Press. Dr. McDaniel, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I see that your research interests include pre-revolutionary America, 18th century religion, gender, and ethnicity. Can you tell me a little bit about your background? When I was a kid, I was very interested in religion. I think I was one of those kids that just found religion fascinating. I went to church with my parents, lots of questions. And when I was in college, I took a women's history course with Professor Christine Stancil, who's now at the University of Chicago. So she's right around the corner from you. And I just thought that it was fascinating. And I got a job at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. More fascinating. And college had me write a thesis. It was a required thesis, and I had to write a junior paper. And looking around for topic, I fell on topics of why women were excommunicated from the church in the early 17th century, then I fell on to shakers. And when I decided to go to grad school, I just decided to keep thinking about that, that sort of connection about why people assume women are more religious, how they transmit religion along ethnic lines, why is their ethnicity and religion often seem so tied? When does that change? How is America different from other countries? Because it is. There's a lot of religiosity in America that you just don't see in Europe. I should say I grew up in Europe, and so I find America fascinating sometimes in its difference from how Europeans view religion and how they view ethnicity. And so it just sort of spiraled from there. I ended up writing my dissertation on Philadelphia, which is an incredibly diverse, religiously and ethnically diverse in the, in the colonial period. I think there's something about early America where you have so many Europeans coming to this continent and seeing it as empty, obviously, it was not, but they, they saw it as that. And they had sort of an opportunity to create a new world. And this is what they created. I like that sort of exploration of, of those ideas. Flash forward to now you're editor of the Connecticut History Review. But let's back up and talk about what first interested you in publishing in and then becoming editor of this publication. I didn't grow up in Connecticut. I grew up overseas. And I didn't actually ever stay in Connecticut, I don't think, until I got the job at Southern Connecticut State University. And when they hired me, one of the questions they asked was, can you teach Connecticut history? Well, when you are a new hire or when you're interviewing for a job, someone says, can you do something? You say, absolutely, yes. So I said, yes, but could you give me a semester to learn a little bit about Connecticut? So they said, absolutely. And when I arrived in Connecticut, I was like, there's this just this richness of this state that often gets lost between New York and Massachusetts, where people sort of go in between the two major cities, you know, between New York and Boston, and all they see is I-95. There's this highway that goes in between. But it's an incredibly rich, diverse, very storied state, but it doesn't often have a very unified story amazing stories. And so I had to come up with this course that said, okay, this is state history. And when state history, there's often a civic component to it, a sense of, okay, this is why we're very prideful of 
our state. This is the message of it's of our state. You know, they often have state mottos and, and things like that. So, okay, what is Connecticut's story? And I turned the course into a course in which we explore uh, different historical sites and museums and the portrayal of Connecticut through its books, its movies, its podcasts. So how Connecticut portrays itself and its civic institutions. And it's a lot of fun. The, the course is great. It got a little bit waylaid because of the pandemic. Normally we all get into a van and we drive around on one day a week and we visit a couple of places. We have conversations in the van about, oh, you know, this tour guide did this. And oh, interesting that they portrayed these things in this museum. Why is that? And, you know, when you have to teach Connecticut in your fourth or fifth grade, and Connecticut would teach it in fourth grade, I mean, you go to these sites, you know, what are you going to tell the kids? It's a lot of fun. And I got really interested in the publications of Connecticut as a way of how do we portray this, you know, really amazing state. And so I was interested in how this publication portrayed that. So that is one of the things that students look at is, you know, what are the articles in this journal? What are people interested in? And why are these the things that come up? So that's the sort of Connecticut part. The writing part, I think that writing is a wonderful way of connecting with a lot of people. History is all about writing. I'm a historian. History is all about conveying complex ideas and transmitting it to other people using often written documents, right? Sometimes we use material objects and we collaborate with a lot of different, different works. I, had a, I have a background in museum studies as well. So we use all of these things, but we normally transmit them through writing, or a lot of historians do. And so historians write, I write, we make arguments. I actually got involved with writing on campus. And so now I'm the director of our writing center at Southern as well. So writing, teaching, writing, helping other people to learn to write, writing more myself, and making sure it's accessible. And you talk about the diversity of Connecticut. The journal also serves many constituencies, museum and historical, society professionals, academic scholars, history buffs, graduate students, educators. What types of articles get your attention when submitted? Articles that have an argument. I actually get a lot of pieces where people are like, I found this really cool thing about Connecticut. And I'm like, that's awesome. I need more than just a, this is cool, right? Because I, I see a lot of that. This is cool. Absolutely, this is cool. But I want people to take away a message. I want people to be able to say, and this is why I should care. This is how I can use it when I'm teaching it. This is how I can use it when I'm making an argument for why I need to incorporate this into the museum or historical society. This is how I can connect it to, you know, this other historical thing that I'm interested in. And I think that's the important part of being, we are an academic journal. We're not the only journal on Connecticut, but we are the only peer-reviewed one on Connecticut history. And what makes it peer-reviewed, what makes it academic is that attention towards argumentation and citation. So that gets my attention when I see a piece that has a good argument. And then I can work on helping them clean up the writing or if I need to go back and help them add more sources. Most of the time, though, I have to ask people to cut their article lengths because we do try to keep it between 10 and 12,000 words. And I get things that are like 60,000 words. I'm like, awesome. Can we find a section of that? 
<laughs> that would be more useful. Let's talk about the first issue that you're in charge of. Some of the article titles, Steady Habits in the Constitution State, Connecticut's Inequitable System of Representation, Riding to Learn, Learning to Ride, Early School Busing in Connecticut, and Troops and Tribes, Masculinity, Playing Indian, and the Social Politics of Ernest Thompson Seton's Expulsion from the Boy Scouts of America. Can you tell me a little bit about what went into and the process of the first edition? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. I should say that one of the articles, the first article on the Constitution, was a pre-existing submission. So when I came over as editor this past summer, was under review. And so this was a sort of a pre-existing one. I didn't have to go out and find it. I did appreciate it. And we had to cut it down a little bit. It went through some reviews. But I really sort of appreciate that. And that sort of set the stage. And I, I used that in many ways for the cover, because I was thinking, okay, you know, how can I sort of set the stage? And this, that really became the sort of center of this issue. And one of the things that I look for when I'm looking for articles is what do they have in common or how do they work together? And so this was sort of the starting piece, right? So that's why it's the first article in this issue. I had a couple of submissions, but I got the one on busing and I was like, okay, here is another sort of political aspect. And so I was like, okay, you know, I, I see the sort of political trend here. The busing one I thought was particularly poignant with the sort of political issues going on right now and busing. I'm certainly not the only parent, I'm sure, that has to drive their kid to school because there just aren't enough bus drivers these days because there's just such staff shortages. So talking about the politics of busing and I, you know, I really look to see if I don't want to make the connection with the present day really obvious. And I don't want to say like, this is what you should think. But I hope that readers, when they read an article that has an argument, then can on their own, make that connection with how it affects their own life, right? This is some background on history, some a different perspective. How can history inform what I'm thinking or going through today? And I thought that talking about Constitutional politics was a wonderful way of talking about some of the constitutional arguments that are going on, not only in Connecticut, but throughout the country. And busing, what was going on in Connecticut, and this is how Connecticut dealt with their own shift to public buses, but then so relevant to us 100 years later. And the last one, as a colleague of mine, Dr. Farley, I had known he had had been working on some Connecticut sites. He's an archaeologist, and he has a site over at the Henry Whitfield Museum, which is in Guilford, Connecticut. And I turned to Dr. Farley, and I was like, you know what? I have these two articles that I really want to put in this issue. Do you have something that could also sort of fit with that? And I know he worked on on Native Americans. He said, well, I have this thing on Boy Scouts. I'd love to take a look at it. So, you know, I sent it out for review and and it came back with some really positive suggestions. And I was like, Boy Scouts, also very political, but it also sort of brings it out a little bit in terms of, you know, not just three things on politics, but these sort of loose connections that will appeal to a variety of readers. Because I don't expect readers to read every single article often, but they'll be like, oh, yeah, I really do want to read that article. That, That one looks interesting, too. And we sort of flesh out the issue. You know, I always look for about two or three articles for issue. And then I round it out with those book reviews, as well as some other things. So reporting on Connecticut History Day. So that's part of the History Day, which is a national organization. I've been involved with Connecticut History Day as a judge for since I got here. And the local one is at Southern Connecticut State University. Having a report, Rebecca Conover talking about Connecticut History Day, the report on that, I like to get 
Uh, so reports on archives so people can see what are the different resources out there because there's some really great resources. So I have a spotlight on the aerial papers from New Haven that's now at Southern Connecticut State. So we have a lot of really, really wonderful the ship's log that just came in. So I have the state librarian talk a little bit about that. It was a wonderful mix of different things, a little bit of focus, but it wasn't a special issue. Sometimes I put together a special issue, which has a theme. This doesn't have a special theme like that. It just came together sort of nicely, I thought. And you talk about the topics and the storytelling that you do seek out out of curiosity. Is there a topic or an area that somebody should avoid or that you're not interested in amplifying? That's a good question. I don't think so. I do occasionally get personal accounts and I don't know if this is the place for that. So, you know, people are like, oh, well, I had this really interesting experience. We're not a sort of memory in that sense, right? I think there's a place for that, but I don't know if we're a place for the sort of personal memories. I think those more go into an archive and that someone else can come through and be like, oh, well, this is a great memory. I would love to collect that and write an article about how we keep memory. So Southern is creating an archive on COVID memories. And I think that is a place for something like that. We just have to find the right venue for the sources. A recent issue of the journal talked about the life of Christopher Kitt Collier. Can you tell me a little bit about him? I never met him, but I do appreciate all that he did. Dr. Collier was the founder of the Association for the Study of Connecticut History, which is the organization that runs Connecticut History Review. So for that, I am eternally grateful. He was the state historian of Connecticut. I do appreciate the way that a state historian really does emphasize the idea of the state's stories. And he really created, I think, a narrative of Connecticut surrounding the Constitution, not only the sort of federal Constitution and Connecticut's role in that. We're talking about someone like Roger Sherman, who was one of the signers and, and really helped create the compromise, the Connecticut Compromise, which was when the founders were talking about what the Constitution should look like. There were several different proposals on the table from Hamilton, representing large states like New York, to small states with different vision. And Connecticut was the one who sort of brought them together and created a compromise called the Connecticut Compromise because it was proposed by Roger Sherman, which was the basis of the Constitution today. So in many ways, Connecticut had a role in the federal Constitution, but also the state Constitution which has had its own interesting story and changes over time, which is, I think, one of the things that Wollanen was talking about in his article, this idea that the changes have been very slow to come about within the state's constitution, but it's been a very important part of how Connecticut sees itself as the constitution state, along with still revolutionary, which I think was also what Kit Collier was doing was that it was not only constitution, but revolutionary. You know, he was a state historian, 1984 to 2004, I believe, professor at UConn. And he wrote many sort of academic books, but he also wrote many children's books, middle grade. I read Sam is Dead when I was a teenager, I think, well before I ever came to Connecticut. And so this is sort of portrayal of Connecticut and sort of the public imagination as this sort of center of the revolution, even though no major battle ever happened in Connecticut. This funny aspect of why is Connecticut and the revolution so tied when there's no major or important 
battle that happened here, small battles, but, you know, mostly between loyalists and patriots, between the British Army and Washington. So it's got that funny history. And of course, when he passed away recently, but he retired in 2004, and then the new state historian is Walt Woodward. And Walt Woodward just announced that he's retiring. He announced that a couple of months ago. Obviously published a lovely tribute to Kit Collier in the journal. Walt Woodward will talk a little bit about, he's also writing something for the Connecticut Review, we'll see probably in the fall, about what it means to be a state historian and the sort of vision for it. What do you do when you're the state historian? What do you try to do? And and Walt has done different things than Kit Collier. And it's going to be really interesting to see who they choose as a state historian. I think Kit Collier had sort of one vision of what Connecticut narrative is. And Walt had this vision that really created the website, which is a sort of today in Connecticut history, a little blog, and, and really sort of brought Connecticut history into the everyday Last question before I let you go. If somebody's interested in writing for the journal, what is the best way for them to reach you or submit to the Connecticut History Review? We do have the journal guidelines. They're on the Association for the Study of Connecticut History website, ASH, A-S-C-H. There is the journal guidelines. There's my email. And hopefully we will be getting back issues and things like that on there as well so that they can look up back issues and find articles that they would find interesting and then can order back issues as well, as well as become a member of ASH, which get the journal as part of that. The latest issue of Connecticut History Review is available on the University of Illinois website, press.uillinois.edu. Dr. Marie Basile-McDaniel, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. 